there and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve the public's awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to rebuilding healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as part of our post-COVID-19 recovery. My name is Lauren, and I'm one of the co-leads of the 2021-2022 Infectious Disease Working Group team. I'm a current Master of Public Health in Epidemiology student and a new Doctor of Pharmacy graduate. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Malika Sharma, who's an infectious disease specialist and assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. In addition to infectious diseases, Dr. Sharma's areas of interest include critical theory and the intersection of feminist, post-colonial, and anti-racist theories with medical education. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much again for joining me today. Uh, Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and about your research? Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, And thanks for having me. So first, you know, my name is Malika. And while I was born here, I'm a settler here in Takaranto in lands that are protected by the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, lands that should have remained under the jurisdiction of the Wendat, the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit Nations. As a settler, I'm very grateful to work and live on this land. And I recognize the ongoing impacts of colonization on Indigenous peoples and communities, as well as immense strength and ongoing resistance uh, from communities in the face of that violence. I aim to address my complicity by working against colonial violence and aim to practice in solidarity with Indigenous people and communities, something I'm still learning how to do. Um, And so, as you mentioned, I'm an HIV and infectious disease physician at St. Michael's Hospital and I'm a clinician teacher there. Clinically, I'm particularly focused on caring for people in communities who are often uh, marginalized or oppressed by our healthcare systems, including people who use substances, and people living with HIV. Um, As an educator, I spend a lot of time thinking about anti-racist and feminist practices within medical education, as well as harm reduction and the so-called structural determinants of health that we'll talk about today. I actually don't really consider myself a researcher, but I do try to approach these areas in thoughtful and inquisitive ways. That's awesome. That sounds like you're a researcher to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Do you mind telling some of our listeners who might not have heard the term before, what are social determinants of health and how would you say those are related to the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. So the social determinants of health are typically thought of as the conditions under which people live, work, learn, uh, and play that determine their overall health and well-being. And these are forces that can include political or economic policies and broader systems, social policies and norms, and broader societal institutions. One of the challenges, though, is that the social determinants of health are often presented as a list like income, disability, gender, educational status, food security. And, you know, while on an individual level, social determinants of health like housing or employment status and working conditions impact people's daily lives, um, and they can help determine the risk of illness or ability to access preventative or curative healthcare measures, um, it's really at a collective or societal level that the inequities between groups of people shape how society is organized, you know, really into hierarchies based on factors like income, gender, and race, and where people are within that socially constructed hierarchy ultimately determines their health. 
So to me, there's a bunch of issues actually in the way that the social determinants of health are presented and thought about. You know, we talked about how, you know, it's presented as a list and that really suppresses this idea of hierarchy. We really don't spend a lot of time talking about how it's the unequal distribution of money, power and resources at local, national and global levels that result in health disparities. And kind of related to that, they're often presented as naturally occurring as if they're just facts of life and not due to like human-made societal systems of power and privilege that give rise to inequities. And then I think also related to that, they're often presented as unchangeable, immutable, right? Like we talk about poverty, but not oppression. We talk about race, but we don't talk about racism. And we're really focusing on the wrong target. So for example, it's not being black that increases your risk for getting COVID. It's the structural racism that does that. Um, I really encourage your listeners to read or watch uh, Dr. Kamara Jones, C-A-M-A-R-A Jones, who uses metaphors to actually really help understand some of these issues. A lot of people have actually talked about things like the structural determinants of health instead as an attempt to refocus the gaze on kind of bigger issues of policy and governance and infrastructure. Or like Dr. Jones actually describes the social determinants of equity to focus more on the issue of hierarchy and forces us to think about power and who benefits. Um, one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Nanki Rai, talks about this like a tree where like the end effects like COVID um, are the fruit and the so-called social determinants of health are the branches. But the roots really are capitalism, imperialism, xenophobia, transphobia, racism, ableism, colonization, sexism. And I think these are really important when we're thinking about COVID-19 because we've seen that the impact of this pandemic has been deeply unequally distributed in terms of the disease itself, but also in terms of the impacts of the efforts that have been made to contain it. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I really love that metaphor with the tree. And I, it's so true. It, it seems like we often target the problems as they come up, but then we're not actually looking for the root um, given the tree, we're not looking for the root of the problem. And then these, uh, we're seeing these inequities continue. Um, and then we're, because we're not addressing what the main causes are. Um, and I really uh, like the idea of thinking of it um, um, kind of with the hierarchy perspective as well. Um, and what are some examples of inequities that the pandemic has highlighted that might have already, I guess, been in place to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of ways to think about this. And, you know, we could talk a lot about the statistics that we've seen. I think it might be helpful to think about inequities seen in a variety of communities and how these intersect in important ways. So one of the first things that I think a lot about is COVID among workers, right? So during the first wave, one of the largest COVID-19 outbreaks in North America was at the Cargill beef processing plant in Alberta, which actually subsequently faced a class action lawsuit seeking damages for harms to workers. There were over 1,500 cases and three deaths in this one workplace where employees reported cramped quarters, being allegedly told to return to work even after testing positive for COVID-19 or if they had ongoing symptoms. And despite workers' objections, the plant was actually initially deemed safe to remain open after Alberta Occupational Health and Safety conducted a video inspection of the facility. Many officials, including public health officials, blamed carpooling and multifamily homes rather than working conditions and the economic reality of precarious work. And a lot of the statements made by officials actually further stigmatized workers and made them targets of racial profiling because many of them were temporary foreign workers and immigrants in Calgary's Filipino community. 
And personal support workers are another key example. So, for example, in late March, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. David Williams, stated that PSWs did not need personal protective equipment outside of outbreak settings. And certainly we know that evidence around COVID evolved and, and all sorts of things. But like you sort of talked about, you know, these were inequities that were pre-existing. So, for example, um, Many PSWs to make ends meet to make ends meet have to work at multiple facilities, um, and that was a huge factor in in COVID transmission early uh, in the pandemic, where there wasn't actually a formal guidance prohibiting, you know, working in multiple areas. There wasn't economic supports provided to PSWs so that they didn't have to do that, and we really did not un- address the underlying precariousness that necessitates this kind of work. Um, and in fact, in Ottawa, there were two PSWs who contracted COVID, you know, in the context of their work who were living in the homeless shelter system at the time because they're, you know, so-called essential work that we've been labeling essential work and banging pots and pans at seven o'clock didn't pay them a living wage. Right? Oh my gosh. So, yeah, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and I think that the key thing is like, you know, this pandemic related long term care crisis has led to labor shortages and recruitment of asylum seekers to work as PSWs. Um, but that's really telling, right? It's like when there's a sudden need or a crunch now, it's like, well, now come and work for us, right? As right. opposed to thinking about asylum and the bigger picture uh, beyond that. And I think similar examples are seen around the numerous outbreaks that have occurred in farms and greenhouses across southern Ontario, with a thousand, over a thousand migrant agriculture workers have been infected and four deaths, all among healthy men younger than 60. Right. And so repeatedly, um, a lot of the messaging seemed to really rely on the need to address employers' fears that mass testing of agricultural workers would result in labor shortages, um, rather than kind of focusing on the health of workers themselves, right? Um, And, you know, for a six-week period at the outset of COVID, the government stopped conducting housing inspections under the uh, temporary foreign worker program. And when the audits resumed, they were done remotely. Not a single employer was found to be in violation initially, While media uncovered that the accommodations were overcrowded, toilets were broken, there were cockroach and bed bug infestations, sheets and cardboard were being used as dividers between bunk beds, workers were not being fully paid for their quarantine. Um, And, you know, a deputy chief coroner's review of the COVID-19 deaths of those three initial migrant farm workers in 2020 led to a call for better safeguards and improved working conditions. But these issues preceded the pandemic. I think the one thing I'll also add to this is that these issues are also deeply related to race, right? When we think about the racialized nature of a lot of the work that we've talked about, the temporary foreign agricultural workers, the people working in the meat plant and PSWs. And in Toronto, where where I'm calling from, you know, white people make up 48% of the city's population and about 18% of all COVID cases, which means that racialized people make up 52% of the population, but 82% of cases. Wow, yeah. And the last time I was on the COVID service during the third uh, third wave, that felt very real to me, right? Almost every patient I saw was racialized. Black people make up 9% of Toronto's population and, and 14% of cases. But at one point last year, it was up to 23% of cases. And right now, South Asian or Indo-Caribbean people make up 13% of the population, but 22% of cases. And talking about, you know, we were talking about this idea of looking at the roots. So, you know, the race is not the determinant. It's the question of why. And I think that's where we have to look at the structural racism. Um, 
the editor of the local, which is a you know um, an online uh, local news outlet, Tai Hoon talks about you know once you solve the bus problem, I'm quoting him here. He says once you solve the bus problem, you quickly realize that people still have to congregate in warehouses, work the cash registers, clean emergency rooms, while the rest of us work from the safety of our bubbles. People who study natural disasters call this social vulnerability, the conditions that make certain communities more susceptible to disaster than others, and it has everything to do with race. It has everything to do with uh, race, class, and economic opportunity. And I think that the flip side of this, right, is that there are structural determinants for those of us who are disproportionately shielded. Right. right. People who yeah. get to work from home, whose COVID rates in their neighborhoods are almost zero, right. who have cottages that the Ontario government decided people are still allowed to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so it's not really about receptors and genetic differences in race, which there was a lot of focus on early on, actually. But it's about the effects of chronic racism, work in essential jobs with increased exposures, no paid sick leave, crowded bus routes, chronic underfunding of infrastructure. Right. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has shown that there's a stark difference between what people in positions of power, including business and government, say and what they do. Actually, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Shale Rawal, tweeted in April, um, and she said, they looked us in the eye and said, your labor is essential, but your lives are not. And I think that's really in particular for racialized um, essential workers. And by that, I don't just mean healthcare workers, right? I mean, grocery store workers. For sure. Um, and it's really this, like, there's been essentially organized abandonment, which is something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks a lot about. And so I think that the, that's an important conversation here, right? Like organized abandonment. Not everyone has had the same or needed degree of support or protection against the pandemic, whether that's sick days or transit justice or workplace related supports. Absolutely. Those stories and stats are heartbreaking and also very telling. I can't imagine Um, what you must have experienced working on the COVID floors and just seeing these numbers come to life and really just put faces to the numbers. And that quote of, um, they call us essential, but then I guess I I don't want to misquote, but they're not treated as essential is very, I think, representative of, of what we've been seeing. And yeah, it's um, like you said, we really have to kind of focus on those root causes um, instead of, I guess, trying to address one problem at a time as, as they come up. Um, and I, I know just throughout the pandemic, some of the inequities that we've been seeing here in Toronto and Ontario and in Canada have, have been reflected globally. Do you have any insights how, um, as to how these inequities have varied both locally and globally? Yeah, I mean, I think I guess the key principle of it is that they're mirrored globally, right? So, for example, in the U.S., uh, cases of COVID among Indigenous peoples were 1.7 times higher than in white people, with hospitalizations being 3.7 times higher and death 2.4 times higher. Um, And, you know, in one analysis that was using this like COVID net, COVID-19 associated hospitalization surveillance network, um, cases were 1.1 times higher, but hospitalizations were 2.9 times higher and death. 1.9 1.9 times higher with similar numbers kind of wow. being seen for Hispanic and Latino populations. In New York, there was this study that basically showed that hospitalizations and deaths and cases almost had like a dose response curve with rates of or levels of poverty. And then similarly in the UK, um, there's been the same demonstration of, you know, in age adjusted analysis, um, black and South Asian people being more likely to uh, acquire COVID and uh, to be sick and hospitalized or die of COVID. 
Um, and again, it's not race that's the factor here, right? It's it's the structural racism in terms of how these systems are set up. I think related to this also is not just an issue of um, you know who gets COVID, but you know we talked a little bit about like who's protected from COVID. So you know in Toronto, uh, that same news outlet, the local, has done some really excellent reporting on the jarring discrepancies between communities and neighborhoods with high proportions of racialized community members, lots of essential workers, and higher rates of COVID, but like vastly lower numbers of pharmacies and other locations offering COVID vaccination. Although there's been really powerful resistance to this, right? So community members organizing vaccination efforts and helping people register and CHC supporting their local communities. And from a global perspective, like I've been really struck by how in Canada, you know, we really have not talked a lot about the deep injustices around global vaccine access. Like we're talking about anti-vaxxers, yeah. we're talking about the side effects of one vaccine versus another, mm-hmm. the clinical implications of mixing vaccines, but like rarely about the fact that, you know, I heard one statistic that 0.3% of all vaccines have been administered in low-income settings. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, it's shocking. And I I feel like people around me here in, in Toronto, they kind of think, oh, well, we're in stage three, we have a high vaccination rate, like COVID is basically over. But just because we're doing a bit better here, like COVID is not over until every person in the world has equitable access to, to vaccination. So yeah, we definitely, definitely agree. Um, And we've kind of already talked about this a little but can you identify some overlapping crises that have been at play during the pandemic absolutely so you know i think there's lots of examples of these but maybe a couple that i'll point to is you know for example locally i think there's a real overlapping crisis of homelessness as we've seen with the recent incredibly violent police evictions of people living in encampments with photo and video evidence showing police beating, shoving, pepper spraying supporters. Yeah, um, oh my gosh. You know, many people, in fact, are staying in encampments because of very real and justified fears of COVID in the shelter system. We've had so many shelter-based outbreaks. Again, related to crowding in the shelter systems, that's due to like decades of underfunding and a lack of affordable housing in our city, right? Um, I think similarly, there's an overlapping crisis with a toxic drug supply uh, being experienced by people who use substances and the people who love them, right? So there's climbing rates of fatal overdoses during the pandemic, compounded by limited access to supervised consumption sites, limited access to healthcare providers and healthcare, and then limited access to public spaces during COVID, you know, coupled with this fear of police violence. And I think to me, this all really speaks to a crisis of capitalism, which is maybe not necessarily what you thought we were going to be talking about. <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, I think we've really seen that during this pandemic in Ontario and more broadly, like there's a lot of people and businesses and interests who have been making a lot of money, right? Like what Naomi Klein describes as disaster capitalism in her book, The Shock Doctrine, right? And a recent analysis in The Star outlined how several of the premier's pandemic decisions in Ontario took place after and in close relation to powerful lobbying efforts. And even if that wasn't the case, I think we are really feeling the effects of decades of underfunding and actual slashing of budgets of public health, public education, um, you know, schools that are poorly ventilated, uh, class sizes that have just been ballooning. And rather than using the pandemic as a moment to say, okay, you know what, class sizes should have been smaller a long time ago. Uh, let's let's use this moment now to make them smaller. Uh, in fact, the opposite is happening, right? And it's like a real whittling away of public infrastructure, workplace protections, and decent wages. Absolutely, yeah. I think that capitalism is at the core of so many of these issues. It was like the fight for paid sick leave. Like there was so much 
it should have just been a like an automatic yes. Like people need paid sick leave, um, not just during COVID, but even post COVID and pre COVID. But there's such like fight because of because of capitalism. It's really um, hard to watch people in power putting money over the lives of their citizens. And I mean, it's really striking, right? Because like mm-hmm. the the call for paid sick days, like it's such a small ask, right? Yeah. Like it kind of, I think, also speaks. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be asked for. It's absolutely important for the for the livelihoods and lives of people who are affected by workplace outbreaks and who need paid sick leave. Um, but to me, it's like it's just it's so telling of how yeah. our capitalist system has constrained our imagination that even this feels like a huge ask, and even right. that we're not getting answered. Yeah, that just seems like a basic human right to have. But uh, yeah, it, I still cannot believe um, some people are uh, against it. But yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Um, and I know we've kind of we've talked about some of the main barriers. Um, but do you have any for the listeners? Do you have any potential solutions that might help to minimize some of these inequities in our society? You know, so that's always the question, and I don't, I don't know if I have any answers. Um, but I think the key thing is to not let ourselves, any of us, believe that this is inevitable or that it can't be changed, right? Like I think we have to actually actively choose to be hopeful about the right. possibility for things to be different to work towards justifying that hope. Um, so I think that means like actively critiquing power, who's shielded from bad outcomes, who is experiencing bad outcomes, and how that shielding of some people from bad outcomes is actually directly related to other people's bad outcomes, right? Like we have been shielded from COVID through the labor exploitation of others. Um, And I think it calls for a diversity of tactics, right? And really reclaiming our identities as engaged citizens. So, you know, there's lots of things happening and we all have different skill sets. And I think it's about trying to engage in the ways that we know how and that we're good at. Um, But, you know, that means supporting many of the movements that are actively taking place at grassroots levels. It means protesting injustices that we see are happening. It means demanding through whatever means we have at our disposal, whether that's social media, whether that's protest, whether that's um, championing for change within our own institutions, our own hospitals, uh, local government, and pushing local, provincial, and federal politicians to, you know, essentially do the right thing, recognizing that there are powerful lobbying forces to push them to do otherwise. And so it means kind of continuing the pressure yeah. in whatever means we know how. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to, to think that, oh, I'm just one person. Like, I don't really know if I can make a difference. But we've even seen in the, in the past few months um, how much the collective voices of all of these individual people can make with respect to various protests and initiatives. So yeah, it's very important to remember that even though you're just one person, there's there's still avenues that you can that you can take to to make a difference. Um, Dr. Sharma, do you have any like resources that you think our listeners should um, should reach out and, and look to? It's a great question. I mean, I think I've mentioned a couple of books that are mm-hmm. that are interesting. I've mentioned a couple of scholars that are interesting. Um, you know, read the local. Their COVID coverage has been fantastic, and they've really highlighted the inequities again and again and again. Um, so, uh, you know, looking for those kinds of news sources, um, and then I would say trying to like you know, find out what's happening in your local community. What are the local CHCs doing? I know a lot of your listeners are from public health. You know, finding out ways that they can get involved. Um, and, and sort of champion things, particularly, I think, you know, vaccine access globally to me is a really interesting piece that we have not engaged with enough as a, as a community. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I definitely absolutely agree. 
Um, and thank you so much also for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been such an incredibly interesting and engaging conversation, um, not only for me, but I'm sure also for our listeners as well. Um, do you mind telling our listeners where they can find you on social media or online? Yeah, um, I have a Twitter account that I haven't yet. Yeah. <laughs> took a little bit of a Twitter break for a while, but I'm sure eventually I'll go back. For sure. Um, Sometimes it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. But they can find me um, on Twitter at Malika H. Sharma. Awesome. Okay, we'll we'll link that as well in our in our bio. And just a note to our listeners, thank you again for, for tuning in. Uh, make sure to like and subscribe if you'd like to hear more and follow us on social media at infectious underscore info. Thank you. Mm-hmm.